This is a message by Pastor Mark Fox at Antioch Community Church in Elon, North Carolina. For more information about the church, go to antiochchurchnc.org. So we're at the end of Genesis this morning, chapter 50, and what a journey Genesis has been. Am I right? There's been creation and catastrophe, faith and failure, horror and hope, and shocking depravity of humanity. Have you been shocked? <laughs> I've been shocked. And, uh, but through it all, God's commitment to see his plan executed, his kingdom established. So we're going to read from Genesis 50. Verses 15 to the end. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, It may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the evil that we did to him. So they sent a message to Joseph, saying, Your father gave this command before he died. Say to Joseph, Please forgive the transgression of your brothers and their sin, because they did evil to you. And now please forgive the transgression of the servants of God, of your father. Joseph wept when they spoke to him. His brothers also came and fell down before him and said, Behold, we are your servants. But Joseph said to them, Do not fear, for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear, I will provide for you and your little ones. Thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. So Joseph remained in Egypt, he and his father's house. Joseph lived 110 years, and Joseph saw Ephraim's children of the third generation. The children also of Machir, the son of Manasseh, were counted as Joseph's own. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am about to die. But God will visit you and bring you up out of this land to the land that he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Then Joseph made the sons of Israel swear, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones from here. So Joseph died, being 110 years old. They embalmed him, and he was put in a coffin in Egypt. Amen. Good morning and welcome all of you who are with us this morning at Antioch and those who are online. I know the mission team is glad to be back. Some of them are here, some of them are not, but we're glad that you guys, such an incredible week and we'll hear a report I think in about three weeks um, and see more pictures about that. And welcome our missionaries from South Africa and from Nepal are with us as well. So Jacob has died, right? And Joseph and his brothers uh, will live in Egypt for many, many more years. In fact, Joseph is going to live another 54 years from, from this point in the last chapter of Genesis. But we know basically nothing about those 54 years except this event, right? When, when he comes back from, from uh, bearing his father, and then, of course, we know something from his last, his last day on earth. They've traveled back. And, and, and they've gotten back safely to Egypt. And how it unfolds and, and Joseph's responses to his brother's fears is a beautiful picture of the gospel. So we're going to break that down. Let's look at this passage under three main points. The brother's fears, Joseph's reassurance, and final promise. 
I love the way it reads here in Genesis. It says, suddenly, you know, basically the brothers realize their father is dead. Well, they buried him, and they've come back on a long journey from Canaan, but it's, almost, it's like it dawns on them, uh-oh, <laughs> dad's, dad's not here, right? He's dead. And it's like they, they assume that their brother Joseph, for the last 39 years since they sold him into slavery, has been just waiting for this moment. You know, just wait. Remember when your brothers used to say to your, your siblings, you just wait till dad gets home. Well, they're just thinking, when dad dies, when dad's out of the picture, this is it because, because there's anger and hatred and vengeance obviously boiling just under the surface in Joseph's heart. And, and, and when, as soon as dad's out of the picture, it's going to be, you know, the shoe's going to drop. It's going to be reckoning, day of reckoning for us. And it's, it's, really, it's really sad to, to see their muddled thinking in this way because at the same time, he's been providing generously for the brothers for 17 years since they moved, since he moved them to Egypt. What happens next? They send a messenger to Joseph. They don't go themselves. They send a messenger to Joseph and they make up a story. Now, I can't say this with authority, but I don't think there's any way that before Jacob died, he called the ten together and said, now make sure you tell Joseph to forgive you. Jacob would have told Joseph that, but he didn't need to because he saw the grace and the mercy of God working in Joseph's heart. He had seen it for 17 years. And so the the guys come with his messenger saying, "Uh, I just wanted you to know that Joseph commanded you forgive the brothers. Oh, and by the way, the brothers are really sorry. they, They feel really bad about what they did to you, right? It reminds me of a parable that Jesus told in Matthew 18. You know this parable, the parable of the unforgiving servant. A servant owed, let's say, $5 billion. I mean, it was an unpayable, repayable amount. There was no way he would ever repay the king the $5 billion in ancient Israel that he owed the king, right? And so the king says, all right, I'm going to sell you and your family and all of your, your belongings till he gets something back. And he says, he throws himself on the king's mercy and he pleads for mercy. He pleads with him to, to forgive him. And the king does. Miracle of miracles. It says, he says, you're free. You're forgiven $5 billion. And you know the story. The guy goes out in the street. The first guy he comes across is some poor schmo who owes him five bucks five dollars right and he grabs him by the throat and demands repayment and the guy pleads for mercy just like he had done with the king and he gives no mercy and he puts him in prison and he says you'll stay there till you pay me the last penny now look there is no way you can understand that story except to say that this man who had been been forgiven five billion dollars did not receive the grace he had been given He did not appropriate that grace to himself. He did not see himself as now free by grace. He saw himself as still enslaved to debt that he would never repay. And so when he meets someone who owes him, there's no way he can let him slide because he's got to pay that debt back. We got this picture. It's kind of cool. So there's the guy on his face before the king. The king forgave him. There he is. And, of course, you remember what happened in the story Jesus told, right? What did the king do? He called the first guy in and said, what are you doing? So he put him in prison and said, you'll stay there until you pay the last penny. How many think he got out of prison? 
This is a story Jesus was telling, but he was making a point, right, about the grace of God that none of us can ever earn. And so the brothers do not understand grace. They don't understand mercy. And, and they are living as those who are still slaves to debt themselves. Tim Keller writes, and I recommend this book if you haven't read it, Cindy and I are reading it together out loud, Forgive, Why Should I and How Can I? It's a great book, Tim Keller. I think it was his last book he wrote, maybe. Um, and this is a quote, When something happens that reveals your sins more clearly, like it did for these brothers, than you've ever wanted to see or admit, does it move you away from God or closer to Him? If it makes you want to stay away from God and prayer and church, that shows you don't understand what Jesus did for you. If you grasped it, your inner dialogue with God would sound more like this. Lord, I knew before you died for me and accepted me. That I knew before that you died for me and accepted me, but I didn't know I was this foolish or this sinful. So now I realize your love is greater than I thought. Your mercy is more free and undeserved than I thought. That's what it means to understand the grace of forgiveness that we've been given through the blood price of Jesus on the cross. The brothers were afraid of Joseph because their understanding of gracious and forgiving God was stunted. So again, Keller writes, if you have a God who is nothing but wrath, and if you have little understanding of what happened on the cross, you'll be a driven person. You'll try hard to be moral. You'll try hard to be good, but you will always feel unworthy. It will be hard to grow into a loving person because fear cannot awaken love. Only love can awaken and grow more love. Joseph weeps when he hears this from the messenger. Why do you think Joseph wept? Was he feeling sorry for himself? Was he sad for himself? I don't think so. I think he was sad for his brothers. I think he wept because he saw that, that, they, were, they, that they were so bound up by their own fear and mistrust that they had never received the grace they'd, they'd clearly seen from God and, and brought to application through their, their brother, they'd never understood that. They'd never appropriated it. And so they're still bound up in their own fear. And that's right. There are a lot of Christians that live that way. They, they come to Christ. They understand they've been forgiven, but they don't really understand that they've really, really, really been forgiven every sin, past, present, and future. And so they're always trying to live, you know, this, this works life that will make God like them. You know, and the brothers are doing that here. Let's, let's try to spare ourselves. Maybe Joseph will like us if we do this. Well, Joseph had proven that he liked them and that he loved them. Well, that leads to Joseph's reassurance. Now, listen, this is as clear a picture of the gospel as anything we've seen in the book of Genesis. This transaction between Joseph and his brothers is as clear a picture of gospel as anything we've seen. Joseph, remember, we've, we've talked about this. He is a type of Christ. He's not Christ. He's not perfect. But he's one who points us to Christ. We look at Joseph and we see Jesus in his fullness. Because Joseph has suffered, mistreated by his brothers as Jesus did. Suffered a great deal because of their sin. His hope was not in man, but in the God of his fathers. He received the favor of God in the pit. He received it in Potiphar's house. And even when he was falsely accused, he received favor from God in the prison. And he was exalted finally to a place of preeminence, as Jesus will be over the whole world, and, 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 and Joseph over Egypt, right? So that, why? So that he could save 
his people from famine. And that was revealed to him through Pharaoh's dreams. So when Joseph speaks to his brothers in these last three truths, these are three pinnacles of Old Testament faith and really New Testament faith as well. Let's look at these three things he said to them and see how they are pinnacles, pinnacles of faith. First, Joseph says, do not fear, for am I in the place of God? Don't be afraid, brothers. I'm not God. I'm not in his place. Why are you afraid? I'm not God. One of the most important revelations we get from Scripture is that there's one God and we're not Him. Everybody said? The the Copernican Revolution, remember that? Copernicus came up with this brilliant idea that was already clearly displayed in the the heavens, but there, there were scientists who didn't believe it, that really the center of the universe is the sun, not the earth, right? And it changed everything in the thinking of scientists about the universe itself. Well, there has to be a revolution that takes place in our hearts when we receive the revelation from Scripture that we are not the center of our lives or this world. God is the center. God is the Savior. God is the judge. God is the King. God is the Lord of the universe. Because that changes everything when we start letting God be God and letting people be people, including ourselves. You know, the brothers saw Joseph as someone who had authority to punish them for their sins. And and in human terms, he did. He was the vice regent of Egypt. What could he have done to his brothers? Anything he wanted, right? He could have imprisoned them. He could have executed them. So in human terms, he did have authority to to exact vengeance on them, as many people have that authority around the world and do it. I just read an incredible book called Escape from Camp 14, and it's about the camps in North Korea and the brutality that goes on there day after day after day. And so there's a, a, a little dictator over there in North Korea who executes people at will. Well, Joseph knew that it was God's place to execute judgment on his brothers for their sin. Because ultimately they had not just sinned against Joseph, ultimately they had sinned against God. And so Joseph gently points them to the Lord. Pinnacle of faith number one, God alone is just. God alone sits in the place of judgment. We are not perfectly just. We do not sit in the place of judgment. Second, Joseph said, as for you, you meant evil against me. But God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. Another of the most important revelations we get from the Bible for our faith is that ultimately our lives are in the hands of God. Our lives as people of God are in the hands of God, not in the hands of man. We spend so much time grieving and suffering and, and weeping and worrying and anxious about what man might do to us. And, and Joseph says, no, don't you understand... You're not, God's God's the one who's in control of our lives. He was in control of mine from the very beginning. And he is yours as well. Don't you see that? Can't you see that? Open your eyes. You know, he had said 17 years ago, you sold me here. Yeah, you did it. You you sold me here. He didn't let him off the hook. He didn't say, you didn't do anything wrong. No, you sold me here. But God sent me here before you to preserve life. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. That's in, in Genesis 45 maybe. Anyway, you sold me here. God sent me here. It was not you who sent me here. It was God. This is as clear an Old Testament version of Romans 8.28 as you'll find. 
right? Paul said in Romans 8, 28, And we know that for those who love God, all things, not some things, all things work together for what? Good for those who are called according to His purpose. They don't work together for good for those who reject God. Not going to end well. But for those who are in the family of God, He works all things together for our good. Saints, we're at, the, we're at the end of this book. And Genesis, remember, is the beginning of God's great plan for the earth and particularly for his people. It's the story of creation, the fall, and redemption. We'll get to restoration later, but in, in the book of Genesis, we see the creation, we see the fall, and we see the plan of redemption. And you say, well, we know where we saw the fall. That was in Genesis 3. When they ate the fruit, they were told not to eat, right? Yes, but it's in the same passage where we see the plan of redemption. Remember that? Remember when God spoke to the serpent, the enemy of, of creation and the enemy of God's people? He said, I will put enmity between you, serpent, and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring, and he shall bruise your head. That's a fatal wound. You shall bruise his heel. That's a temporary wound. That's, that's the plan of redemption. Right there spoken in the garden right after the fall. Right there in the beginning, God says, hey, I've got this covered. I've got you. I'm in control. And I'm going to work all things together for the good of those who love me and are called according to my purpose. We see that plan of redemption continue through Abraham and Isaac and and Jacob. Remember, God, God keeps them. He protects them. He blesses them. Sometimes he rescues them. And we know there's going to be a great deliverer raised up from Pharaoh's own house. Hundreds of years from this point. A deliverer raised up who will will deliver by God's mighty hand the people of God from bondage. How will that deliverer be in Egypt? Because God used Joseph to bring his people to Egypt. That they might be saved alive through the famine. And Joseph's provision for God's people and Moses' deliverance of God's people is amazing, but it pales in comparison, Joseph and Moses, pale in comparison to the deliverance that will be given to God's people through Jesus, the Son of God, the offspring of the woman who will crush the serpent's head by giving himself up for us the perfect sacrifice for our sin. See how this book of beginnings, it lays it all out there for us. More on that perfect sacrifice in a minute. And third, the third statement Joseph makes is, Do not fear, I will provide for you. This is another great pillar of faith and and understanding who we are and who God is. It means that we who belong to God can afford to do good to those who have harmed us. Joseph didn't say this, but he could have said, yeah, you sold me, and I'm going to provide for you. Yeah, you did evil against me, and I'm going to believe and do good for you. You know, Jesus taught this truth before he himself demonstrated it on the cross. He said, but I say to you who hear, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who abuse you. We could not afford to do that unless we understood our position in Christ and the bounty that we have in Him 
that though they may kill our body, they can't take our soul and we will forever be rewarded in heaven no matter what happens. We can love our enemies and we can do good to those who persecute us. Love is action. Nothing says that better than the cross. And so I said I'd come back to that thought of the perfect sacrifice. I love this quote from Stott. And I read this. This is from The Cross of Christ by John Stott, but it was in the book Forgive by Tim Keller. He says, The concept of substitution may be said then to lie at the heart of both sin and salvation. For the essence of sin is man substituting himself for God, while the essence of salvation is God substituting himself for man. Man asserts himself against God and puts himself where only God deserves to be. God sacrifices himself for man and puts himself where only man deserves to be. Man claims prerogatives which belong to God alone. God accepts penalties which belong to man alone. And everybody said, hallelujah, praise the Lord. So here are the brothers not understanding that God had spared them, had loved them, had blessed them, even in spite of their sin, just as he has you and me, in spite of our sins. And finally, the final promise. We believe Joseph was 56 when his father died. Say, 39 when he brought the family to Egypt. So 17 years later, dad dies. And so he's, he's around 56. He's going to live to 110. That means he's got how many, how many more years left? Quick, do the math. Right, 54. So Moses chose not to reveal anything about those basically 54 years between the time they came back from burying Jacob to the time that, that uh, Joseph is going to die, his last day. Only this encounter that we saw and we've just talked about. But what Joseph said to his brothers before his death is so significant that it put Joseph in the hall of faith. Where's the hall of faith, remember? Hebrews 11. Joseph says to them, God will visit you and bring you up out of this land to the land, and I just put it, land of promise. Then he said it again to them, and he, he made them swear. He said, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry my bones from here. This promise is not going to be fulfilled in their lifetime. These guys are not going to see that. In fact, I wonder how many of them, I didn't do the research on this, maybe some of you Bible scholars know, how many of the brothers were still alive when Joseph died? Because he was the youngest, except for Benjamin. I don't know. But he's talking to his brothers here, right? At least that's what the Bible says. And none of them are going to be alive when, when, when they carry him to Egypt. That's going to be 430 years or so from now. So the writer of the Hebrews adds him to the hall, saying, By faith, Joseph, at the end of his life, made mention of the exodus of the Israelites and gave directions concerning his bones. But notice the repetition here in the verse. Verse 24. I'm about to die, but God will visit you. And then look at verse 25. Then Joseph made the sons of Israel swear, saying, God will surely visit you. That's a big-time word in Hebrew. We're not going to trace its, its heritage there. But when, God, when Joseph says two times, God will visit you, God will surely visit you, he's pointing to some very significant events that will happen in the future. Right? It was a significant first for the exodus of the Israelites who were in bondage out of Egypt from darkness to light, from bondage to freedom. And it points to... Uh, a future exodus, a future deliverance, 
when Zechariah, this is Zechariah in Luke 1, whose son John the Baptist has been born, right? And he's not the Christ, but he's the forerunner, right? He's the best man. He's pointing to the Christ. And Zechariah says, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. And then when John the Revelator is writing his last book, The Revel on the Isle of Patmos, and the very last thing, he writes as Jesus says, Surely I'm coming soon. And John says, Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. Come, visit your people for one last time. Because that last visitation is the one we're looking forward to. And the one we continue to look forward to, the unfolding plan of redemption. That's how the book of Genesis ends, looking forward. And you and me, we still live looking forward. Let's pray. Father, we are thankful for this book, thankful for the year and a half that we've spent soaking in it, not knowing that we have not even begun to plumb the depths of all the verses in this book. But Lord, we've tried. We've given it our best shot, but we're thankful that you continue to teach. Your Holy Spirit continues to illumine your words to us as we continue to study the Word of God. So, Lord, bless us with, with uh, further revelation from this book that is, that is true, that we might continue to live as people of God. Thank you for the reminders that you are God and we're not, that we can trust you to be the judge of all things, including those who've sinned against us. Thank you for teaching us that we are in your hands and that nothing can happen to us that's outside of your will. Those who belong to you, Lord, all things are, are working for our good, your glory. And thank you, Lord, for reminding us that, that we will see you again and that we are in, uh, in, your, in your promise of the future. And, Lord, uh, we can forgive those who hurt us. We can, afford, we can afford to forgive those who persecute us even. Lord, bless this church. Bless uh, this message to the edification of your people here in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message. Antioch meets every Sunday morning at 10 a.m. at 1600 Powerline Road in Elon, North Carolina. For more information about Mark and the books he's written, go to jmarkfox.com.